This podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Vitz School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.vitz.ac.za/wsg. Here, thank you for joining this very important occasion where we are launching this conversation on vaccines and our capacity to manufacture vaccines as part of dealing with what has come to be known as vaccine nationalism. We welcome all of you to this important launch session. Uh, my name is Busani Ngaweni. I will be moderating the session today. I will not be speaking much because I would like to give a full opportunity to Dr. Genga Song from Africa CDC to give an intervention. And we also have a distinguished panelist who will be you know, responding to some of the interventions that you will have made. We welcome all of you here as uh, participants. This is the program or the running order for the day. We've made a few adjustments. In order to maximize time this afternoon, we will have Dr. Nkenga Song, and immediately after that, we'll have Dr. Kaleng Mofukeng, popularly known as Dr. T, and Mr. Zain Dango. Many of you know him from uh, you know, DECO and social development. We will then open it up after that for a conversation. Please do use the Q&A platform, we will be answering some of the questions as we move along, even before we open it up for a Q&A, we will be answering some of those questions. Welcome once again, without further ado, let me welcome Prof. Mzugisi Kobo, who is the head of the VET School of Government to give us opening remarks before we go to Dr. John Kengasong. Thank you very much. Over to you, Prof. Thanks, uh, thanks, Musani. I'll keep it very short because um, our guests have very pressing commitments. On behalf of the VET School of Governance and the National School of Government, we would like to really welcome all of you to this very important dialogue. There is a change in the global landscape of vaccines. We're at a different space than we were a year ago when uh, the first lockdowns were announced in South Africa and in many of the African continents. Uh, there has been a race to acquire and to hold vaccines, especially by advanced industrial economies, in ways that generates a bifurcation on access affecting developing countries and African countries uh, in particular. And the theme today is really on vaccine nationalism and political economy of, of access and for us to think into the future with respect to Africa's manufacturing options. So I really want to, um, to thank our speakers today for availing themselves. Uh, we know that they have a very busy schedule. I also want to take the opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors and supporters, uh, Telcom, APSA and Higher Health. Without these partnerships, it would be difficult to bring you uh, conversations like this. This is not a once-off webinar. We are going to be having a series of policy dialogues to try and grapple with some of these challenges related to access, political economy of vaccines, and Africa's manufacturing options. Uh, so we will let you know of future events. Without further ado, I'd like to hand over to uh, Dr. John Kengansong to give us his keynote address, and then we will have a panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you. This is just to show his profile. You know, colleagues can have a look at it. 
will not uh, you know, be reading all of it. We will also share it in the chat platform for ease of reference. Thank you, Doctor. Over to you. So, can you see my slides now? Yes, we can see it very well. No, great, wonderful. Thank you, first of all, the School of Governance at the Wits University in South Africa for inviting me to this very important dialogue. I will tell you from the bottom of my heart that I really enjoy this kind of platform because that is the only way that we get to share knowledge and discuss important issues of our time. In 1963, I remember one of the heroes at that time, Dr. Martin Luther King, describe the challenges that they faced at that time, the challenges of civil rights movement in the United States as the fierce urgency of now. And I think of no other moment that characterizes our own challenges of our time than that fierce urgency of now for us to have access to vaccines, safe and efficacious vaccines for the continent of Africa. And I believe strongly that the power of humanity will prevail and that this should be underpinned by the strength of our own individual commitments wherever we are in the world as humanity and also the force of our collective actions that if we mobilize these two elements, i.e. our own individual commitments, because in our own rights we are leaders and collectively in the societies we play in, the companies we operate in, I think we will overcome this the fierce urgency of now. In a couple of minutes, I would like to review for you discuss the topic of today, vaccine nationalism and our own prospects. But I would like to do that in the context of the four things. One is, what is our epidemiological situation on the continent? So that is the problem that is facing us. That is the challenge of our time. What is the situation on the COVID vaccine update on the continent? And put that in the context of what the world is facing. And then I'd like to really discuss a little bit the AstraZeneca situation because it has been topical over the last couple of weeks. And the reason I'd like to bring that up is really to show that what can happen if that particular vaccine doesn't get uptake in Africa, and then leave you with a few takeaway messages, including my reflections on continental manufacturing of vaccines. So let me start with the epidemiological situation. On the left-hand side of this, you see where we are as a continent, a little bit above 4 million cases of COVID-19. 3.6 million have recovered, that is about 90%, and about 108,000 deaths. The graph on your right-hand side shows the trends since the start of the pandemic in February. The first cases of COVID-19 hit the continent of, on the 14th of February in Egypt. And the red line you see in there is uh, what we commonly call the seven days moving average. And the vertical axis represents the daily COVID-19 cases. And of course, the different colors underneath the red line, the different regions of Africa, the five geographic regions of the African Union. Clearly, we have seen two peaks. The first is around last year, July, August. And then the second peak, or what is commonly called the second wave, had occurred in January and is coming down now, uh, but stabilizing. And my fear is that because it's beginning to stabilize, it is a clear indication that it's going to be uh, ticking up again. So we should be embracing ourselves for the third wave on, as a continent. Just to show you a few slides with what is happening within each region, the Southern African region is the graph on your left-hand side between a period of February 17 and March 18. We've seen about a minus 56% reduction in the number of daily cases 
Similarly, in West Africa, we've seen about a minus 49% reduction. Then if you turn to Central and North Africa, very similar rates, which is a reflection of the first graph you saw over the last four weeks. However, when you look at East Africa, you see that clearly uh, there's been an increase of about 98% over the last four weeks. And it's fair to say that East Africa as a whole, as a community, is now going through the third wave. I'd like to use Kenya, and this is my last slide on the updates, the epidemiology updates. Kenya is a good example of how it has gone through the first wave. The second wave around November, December, they brought it down nicely after the holiday seasons. And now you see that within the last four weeks, experience about a 400% increase in the number of daily cases. The reason I show this slide is twofold. One is to show that Kenya as a country has done remarkably well, like other countries in Africa. I think if you put South Africa on this map, it will be very similar. The definition of a country that has done well is not that you suppress the spread of the virus, which is extremely difficult, but that you are able to recognize the peaks, bring it down to the troughs, and then do what is necessary to try to maintain it using public health measures. So we are talking, discussing vaccines or we'll be discussing vaccines in the next couple of minutes, but it's very important to note that we are not helpless, that the public health measures that we have at disposition can continue to buy us time as we fight this pandemic. There's a saying that you go to war with what you have, not what you need. What we need for this battle is vaccines. The vaccines are coming in slowly, but what we have are the public health tools that we should use in fighting this pandemic and the war at hand. So that helps me to segue into the situation of vaccines in Africa. The map here shows you the cumulative COVID-19 vaccinations per 100 people. And the darker the color, the better that country has done or is doing with respect to the number of people vaccinated per 100 people. You clearly uh, see that uh, uh, countries like United States and uh, Israel is somewhere there and United Arab Emirates have actually vaccinated more people. United Arab Emirates is somewhere on this, just at the tip of Saudi Arabia. You see that most countries are in light red colors. And uh, they are making progress. Europe is beginning to back in a lot in terms of the intensity of the color. But if you look at our continent, it is really still very white. Those countries that you see in very pale red are countries that are beginning to receive vaccines. They're not necessarily rolling out vaccines. Countries like Rwanda are doing that, South Africa, of course, and other countries, but not a lot, as you can clearly see that. It is probably the region of the world that is least colored. Now, what are the global targets? The top left-hand side here shows Dr. Fauci uh, pronouncing that 80% of Americans must be vaccinated before the country returns to normalcy. Uh, China plans to vaccinate 70 to 80% of its population by mid-2022. Uh, Italy is aiming to vaccinate at least 80% of its population by end of this September. So those are the targets that the world has set or other parts of the world are setting for themselves. If you look at our continent, we believe that vaccines plus vaccinations is equal to life saves. And you can reverse this and say that vaccines minus vaccinations equals no vaccines. But I prefer to stay in the positive lane. And that means that we have to, as we scramble to get vaccines, we should also look at what will require that we do the vaccinations, i.e. strengthen the facilities, personnel, the supplies, the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure, and very importantly, the community. 
If we do that, then we'll also be striving to reach 60% target that we've established as a continent. And this target was taken to the Bureau of the Head of States, and they did endorse it as a way forward. And that means that we are striving to immunize about 720 million people that will require about 1.4 billion doses of vaccines if the vaccines that we end up using requires two doses there. I just want to make that mental picture and situate you where we are with respect to the rest of the world. The reason that we choose 60% is that if you take off the age group between 0 and 14, they constitute 39% of the Africa's population of 1.2 billion. That is about 480 million people. And if you subtract that from 1.2 billion people, then you are left with about 750 million people. So if we vaccinate 720 million, then we're almost vaccinating all the eligible population on the continent. I just don't want to create doubts as to why are you setting your targets lower than that of the rest of the world. So let's see what we have in terms of vaccine. Now, if you need to achieve that target of vaccinating 60% of our population by the end of 2022, it means that by May this year, we should be able to achieve a certain number of vaccines. What you are seeing here are the projections of vaccines that the COVAX facility, and COVAX here is the mechanism that the World Health Organization, the GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccine, as well as CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, set up. So the projection is that they will provide us with about 75 million doses of vaccines, and most of that is driven by the AstraZeneca vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine, the doses are here very if you put that on the same scale, you see that it's almost unreadable. And I had to zoom in a little bit to show that we're anticipating about 319,000 doses there. So that is what the COVAX is projecting to supply us. Now, in order to achieve a target of 60% by 2022, you need at least 120 million doses of vaccines by the end of May. And the graph that you now are seeing shows you where we are with that, the blue curve is, again, the, um, the vaccines from the COVAX facility, 75 million. But then you have now a gap of 45 million doses of vaccines by the end of June, if we have to get to a target of 60% by 2022. And um, because of that, uh, President Ramaphosa last year, in his capacity as the chair of the AU, set up the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, abbreviated AVAC. I'd like you to memorize that abbreviation AVAC because I'll be using it extensively going forward. So we've secured about 270 million doses provisionally. Provisionally means that you have to sign the contracts with the companies and then countries place their orders. And we are in active discussions to try to secure an additional 400 million doses of the vaccines in order to enable us to get to a 60% target. What I'll do in the next three slides is to show you where countries are with respect to achieving their 60% coverage. So let me spend a little bit of time on this slide. On the left-hand side tells you the number of countries who received vaccines from the COVAX mechanism and to achieve their at least 30% coverage. In six countries, we truly don't have information. And uh, the line you see here, the dotted line at the 60% line is the target I just described. So the three colors that you are seeing are as follows. The COVAX mechanism, which again represents the initiative from WHO, the Gavi and CEPI, 
is in blue. The AVAC, those that will countries that are going to be using vaccines or securing their vaccines from the platform, that is the African Union platform, and the orange colors going forward will be those bilateral deals. Okay, so from this slide, you see that there are 26 countries that will be receiving vaccines solely from COVAX and they will only achieve 30% of coverage. Then you look at the second wave of countries, there are 17 of them that are securing vaccines in the range of 30 to 60%. And again, the same colors applied. I will just use the first two countries, that is South Africa and Rwanda, and then Namibia added just to illustrate the point. So South Africa is going to be using three color codes to achieve its target of 60%, predominantly bilateral, right? And that is why you see the orange bar is higher than they will be counting on the Africa Union Mechanism AVAC in red to secure additional doses and then in blue to COVAC mechanism. It will hit them right at 60%. If you look at the next country, Rwanda is going to be counting on the AVAC process to secure almost equal number of doses as those from COVAC in blue. And uh, that is how they will even... Uh, having said that, there will still be a gap of about 15% to achieve the 60%. Then you look at Namibia, right at the bottom, they will secure some doses of vaccines from our own mechanism and then quite a good number of doses from the COVAX, but that will leave them with a serious gap of almost 30% to uh, get to 60% coverage. Then the last set of countries are eight, those that are potentially already crossing the line. Here, again, let me be very clear. These are not countries that have already immunized, but those that are immunizing and have secured vaccines. For example, the AVAC vaccines will only be around for available towards the end of the second quarter, beginning the third quarter. But it shows you that countries have secured those vaccines or are in the process of securing that. Now, again, as in the previous slide, let me use the first two and the last one to illustrate the point. The Kingdom of Morocco is actually going to exceed the 60% line because it's getting more vaccines from uh, bilateral, mainly from China, and then they'll get some of their vaccines from the COVAX. The Republic of Guinea-Bissau is getting most of its vaccines from the AU and some from COVAX. Let me now rush to the last one, which is the Federal Republic of Nigeria, will be achieving its 60% by almost equal doses from the AVAC and COVAC mechanism. So that's where we are with the continent. Now, which vaccines are where? The slide here just shows you a whole spectrum of vaccines that are being used on the continent. But suffice to say that predominantly it is through the AstraZeneca vaccine in 21 countries. South Africa is using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And they started off with the AstraZeneca. And the story about that is everyone is aware of that. Who is being immunized? As a priority population, predominantly the greens, color you see here, which is the healthcare workers, are being immunized. Then people with comorbidities and the elderly, which is defined as those above 65 years old. And the frontline and essential workers are being immunized. And in some countries, the political leadership as well. So that this map just captures that and summarizes that for you. Let me just go back to this slide again to transition. Again, vaccines plus vaccination equals save lives, and we are striving to get 60% of our population immunized. But what are the critical challenges that we are having? First of all, I just made a point that access to COVID-19 vaccines continue to be a scramble for scarcity. The supply pipeline is extremely, extremely tight, limited, 
I can't tell you how many countries are coming forward. We say, look, we have money. We don't know where to go get a vaccine. So I think that is a serious challenge because we know that a lot of doses have been actually acquired by developed countries. And uh, we are asking them to release those doses now in the spirit of the fierce urgency of now because any delay on the continent means that we are moving towards endemicity of this virus on our continent. The second challenge is the significant logistic challenges that we have in immunizing at least 35% of our population by the year, by the end of this year. This means that uh, we need about 800, as I said earlier, million doses of vaccines. And you can, I mean, those countries that have received vaccines over the last couple of three weeks are still struggling to roll that up. Lastly, the challenge of mutations or the variants that you've heard of continues to remain a challenge for all of us. Speaking about the variants, this map shows you where we have identified or are tracking where the variants are. The green color represents the B1351 variant, which was initially identified in South Africa, and 17 countries have now identified that variant. And you can see them there in green, predominantly in the Southern African region. The orange color there shows where the B117 variant, which is known to have originated from the UK, is uh, located. And the red colors are those that have actually reported both variants. That is the B1351 and the B117 variant. The reason I bring this up is that, again, these vaccines will be challenged by the emergence of these variants and uh, over time. So the only way to beat back this whole issue problematic of variant is to immunize quickly so that we deny the virus the opportunity to transmit. Once the virus is transmitted, it replicate and of course will lead to the challenges of variants. Uh, as Africa CDC, we have established a network of what we call the Africa CDC Pathogen Genomic Initiative to address the issues, recognizing that not all countries can be able to do their own sequencing. We organize at three levels. One is what we call specialized genomic centers, one in Nigeria, two in South Africa. At the regional level, they are indicated there. I will leave you to read that by yourselves. Then at national level. So countries that are not able to sequence at national level, we are referring them to and supporting them financially to move specimens to the, the regional level or to the specialized labs. We have contributed about 8,000 genomes into the database. However, our target is to achieve about 50,000 genomes in Africa by the end of the year in about 10 months' time so that we have a full picture of how the virus is mutating across the continent and spreading. Again, some key priorities is how do we acquire vaccines to close the gaps that I just highlighted? How do we vaccinate at scale using vaccination centers? And how do we support, provide technical assistance to countries to increase the ability to roll out vaccinations quickly? Let me transition to the AstraZeneca situation and walk you through the history of that. This particular vaccine is receiving a lot of attention. WHO pre-qualified it on February 15. On the 24th of February, following that pre-qualification, first shipments were made to Africa, to many countries. At least 22 countries in Africa have received that. On 25th of February, the Africa CDC or Africa Union issued their own statement approving the use of that uh, vaccine on the continent. Just to put this in context, that 78 countries in the world are using the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to 77 for the Pfizer and Moderna, 32 countries. Uh, again, the point of this slide is that it's not just Africa using this vaccine. 
20 million doses have been distributed to 28 member states through the COVAX facilities, and they're all listed here. The issue of safety started showing up, what we call safety signals, and reports of very small number of people that have developed uh, thromboembolic events, which is in simple language, a blood clot in the vessel at some point after receiving a vaccine arise. And several European countries posed the use of the vaccine. Denmark, Norway, Iceland suspended the use of the vaccine. Netherlands follows and other countries and believe Germany as well. Just to say that they have since resumed the use of the vaccines. In Africa, the DRC joined the group and posed the use of the vaccine temporarily. Cameroon did the same. What follows is that on 10th of March, the European Medicine Agency issued a preliminary view that there was no specific issues with that batch of the vaccine in Austria because it all started in Austria. There was no causal relationship between the vaccine and the adverse effects. And that particular batch had been delivered to 17 countries in the EU, comprising about 1 million doses. Then the European Medicine Agency went for that, uh, conducted more investigation and concluded that 30 cases amongst 5 million people vaccinated in Europe, representing 0.006 cases per 100 individuals. And they concluded that the vaccine's benefit continue to outweigh the risk and the vaccine can continue to be administered while investigations are ongoing. AstraZeneca issued its own statement they reviewed all the data, about 17 million people that have been vaccinated in Europe and the UK, and they showed no evidence of increased risk in any defined age group, gender, batch, or in any particular country. The European Medicine Agency on the 16th of March then issued a statement on that. We, as Africa CDC, at the same day convened an emergency meeting where about 260 experts across the continent gathered, and we discussed the issues and issue a statement. The AFCOD here is the African Task Force for COVID-19. And we concluded based on the discussion from experts that the vaccine should continue to be used in Africa, that the benefits from the vaccine outweigh the risks and that we continue to monitor events across Africa. WHO on the 17th of March issued a statement that WHO considered that the benefits of the vaccine outweighs its risks and recommend that vaccinations continue. In Africa, so that is what we know about it. So let me just move to my conclusion by addressing the last part of vaccination manufacturing on the continent. As we speak, the know-how for vaccine manufacturing exists in the continent. The green countries or countries that are color-coded green are those that are already manufacturing vaccines, including two sites in Africa, South Africa, the Baovac and Aspen. The Aspen is doing the field and finish work for the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine. The BAUVAC is currently manufacturing measles vaccines, pneumococcal, hepatitis, and other vaccines on the continent, and polio. And uh, we know that Pasteur Institute in Senegal does the yellow fever vaccines, and then there's rabies vaccines in Algeria. The Institute Pasteur in Morocco does the rabies, influenza, typhoid fever as well, and Egypt as well. So there's really that capacity or know-how for vaccine manufacturing in Africa and which we should really take advantage of. So my takeaway messages to conclude is that Africa CDC considers that the AstraZeneca vaccine should be used. Again, just to record the statistics, that is 0.006 cases per 100 individuals, and Africa CDC continues to monitor the situation. The World Health Organization has an office in Afro, examine 1,000 individuals 
that have received the vaccines out of a subset of 850,000 people vaccinated and none have been found to have a serious side effect. On April 12, Africa's CDC and the African Union, under the leadership of Chairperson Musafaki, including the COVID champion, His Excellency Cyril Amaposa, and the Chair of the African Union, President Sisekedi of DRC, will be convening a meeting to discuss exactly how do we expand Africa's vaccine manufacturing on the continent. So, colleagues, let me conclude here, and I hope I've addressed and bring you up to date with respect to where we are with vaccine manufacturing on the continent, the shortcomings to reach a target of 60% and what partnerships can be rallied to enable us cross the 60% threshold. I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Engasong, for this insightful presentation. I think as many observers have lamented the point that it's very important that we've seen scientists moving into the forefront, replacing priests, because in some countries we have seen you know, priests behind heads of state and the people who are actually providing the support behind the heads of state currently, it is scientists you know, like yourself in each of every member state of the African Union working with the international partners. And I'm sure most of the colleagues who are attending here are appreciating your intervention. We've got two people who are respondents here who will be, you know, responding and sharing some perspective. We'll start with Dr. Kaleng Mofokeng. She's popularly known as Dr. T in the country and beyond the country. We'll move right along and give her an opportunity. After that, we'll call Zain Dangot to follow. Dr. T, welcome. Good afternoon, colleague. Thank you so much for inviting me to share my ideas and thoughts on today's program. And good morning, of course, to our colleagues, Dr. Nkehasong and, of course, Jane Dango. Lovely to see and be with you all today. And I'm going to take a perspective of defining the right to health, um, of course, within this current COVID-19 pandemic and crisis, but also think about and propose some ways forward in which how states and all the other important players in the healthcare sector should be behaving and how I think human rights should be the bedrock of all of our responses at a global as well as a national level. Now, the right to health is an inclusive right. Um, it extends not only to timely and appropriate health care, but it also speaks to the underlying determinants of health, and which is why often we will argue that the right to health is in fact a feminist issue. It is in fact a social justice issue an economic justice issue, and some of the underlying determinants of health that are important to the realization of the right to health include an adequate supply of safe food, nutrition, and housing. And we have seen how the anxiety around a lack of access or sufficient food, nutrition, and housing during the pandemic made it really difficult for people to stay under lockdown and remain safe. Also, access to safe and potable water and adequate sanitation really came to light because many of the public health communication around the pandemic was about, you know, washing hands regularly for 20 seconds. And of course, the question would be what of those communities in the peri-urban and mostly rural communities around the world, as well as on the African continent, who continue to lack access to safe and potable water? What does it mean for them for such a basic prevention tool when it comes to COVID-19? It's also important to also talk about 
healthy occupational and environmental conditions in the context of COVID-19, how many healthcare providers who have been the bedrock and the backbone of many ailing health systems around the world had to go and confront the pandemic head on without adequate personal protective equipment. We've also seen how the mental health and the lack of support for mental health and wellness of healthcare providers and essential services staff has led to them being unable to offer the quality care that we know and expect from the public health sector predominantly. And of course, some of the environmental conditions are important as well in this COVID-19 because we know about climate change, we know about the natural disasters and the issue of internally displaced populations as well as those who are migrants in various um, countries and regions in the world. And of course, the important one as someone who has been focusing on sexual and reproductive health rights most of my um, career, the issue of access to health-related information, education, um, including SRHR, was really important. And we've seen how globally many states have taken the crisis of COVID-19 as a pretext to passing legislation that further disempowers people and actually criminalizes autonomy as well as sexual and reproductive health including adolescent health. And one of the most important entitlements broadly that are specific to the rights to physical and mental health is, of course, issues of maternal, child and reproductive health, informed consent. Um, and we know how people have been talking and reacting to the issues of vaccine. And I think mostly that the people who seem to be vaccine hesitant are not necessarily anti-vaxxers, but people do require access to information and much wider public health campaigns that can assist them to have the necessary information for them to give informed consent when it comes particularly to the issues of vaccination. And of course, I think what's really important, what's really key for this meeting today is the issue of the prevention, treatment and control of diseases, including access to essential medicines. And the vaccine for COVID-19 is essential medicine. And this leads me to the next state in the conversation about what are the obligations of the state then with all of this pandemonium, crisis, chaos, and anxiety. And the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, in general, comment number 14, actually defines broadly and specifically what are the obligations of the state when it comes to the fulfillment and the implementation of the right to health at the national level. And of course, one of the basic and most important obligations is to respect to protect and to fulfill the right to health and at minimum core obligations that exist are also important because it also goes as far as saying that states should include the guarantees of non-discrimination and equal treatment as well as they have an obligation to take deliberate, concrete and targeted steps towards the full realization of the right to health. And really something that is key, it talks about the preparation of a national public health strategy and a plan of action. And we can all look at various regions in the world and learn, I suppose, some best practice that's emerging. But also there's a lot to be said about historically the public health planning and resourcing and the fact that the vaccine crisis hit us at a point where globally we were ill-prepared and we were not paying enough attention to a public health strategy that takes into account a national health disaster of such a scale. Now, in November 2020, colleagues of mine, as well as myself, as the United Nations experts on various human rights, issued a statement that speaks directly to the issue of vaccine access. And what we wanted to reiterate there and highlight is that, of course, at a global level, 
inequalities are also increasing. And these inequalities are historic, but they are also happening between countries. And we've also seen the differences between the so-called richer or developed countries versus what has been able to be achieved by the so-called developing countries. And there are lessons to be learned um, about how we even judge, right, and determine what a developed country is versus what a developing country is, especially when you are talking about human rights and the lack of adherence to international human rights commitments by the so-called developed countries. And I continue to emphasize, again, as a special rapporteur on the right to health, that the global pandemic of the scale and human cost, with no clear end in sight, requires a concerted, principled and courageous response And that all efforts to prevent, treat and contain COVID-19 must be based on the bedrock of human rights. And that we have to talk and adhere to principles of international solidarity, cooperation and assistance. And that there is no room for nationalism or profitability in decision making about access to vaccines, essential treatments and diagnostics and other medical goods and services, as well as supplies. And I think this, again, is important. Our point, I suppose, where we have to talk about the African continent and our own internal capacity as a continent to be able to manufacture, distribute and procure our own African products that will assist us to not be dependent on imports for every single uh, part of our healthcare chain. And what's also important, again, is to talk about how, you know, the various UN bodies, such as UNESCO, uh, WHO, have really been talking about the scientific knowledge and what that you know what scientific knowledge can play in reducing inequalities and the fact that the world over we've been hearing about how richer countries are hoarding not only the vaccine once it's procured and manufactured but also they are hoarding the scientific knowledge that would make um, it possible for other countries to go on and manufacture and develop their own vaccines. And of course, international cooperation and multilateralism are vital for facilitating the country's navigation of present crisis and for laying the groundwork for a robust and sustained and inclusive socioeconomic recovery around the world. And I say again, you know, inclusive is important there because we've seen how the world, even despite that UN slogan of leaving no one behind, continues to leave people behind. And even during this pandemic, in terms of the response um, as a public health, but in terms of social support as well, it's those people who were already vulnerable, who were already in vulnerable um, situation or marginalized in society, who were already under normal circumstances, were being cut out of services and goods in public health, such as adolescent people, migrant populations. We know the issues of Black communities around the world and how spatial planning continues to impact us and literally how racism um, kills and how many Black populations who experience racism in their daily life continue to be at higher risk of diseases such as hypertension, diabetes and other comorbidities, which actually leads to more severe disease of COVID-19. And this is why it's important for us as we think of a world post-COVID, which I argue may not exist, But we have to really talk about and be honest about why certain populations around the world continue to be negatively impacted by any global health crisis. And you can almost predict the negative fallout. And in this case, it is Black people, it is communities of color around the world and Indigenous peoples that have borne the brunt 
of the most negative of, of impact. And just in closing, there are certain recommendations to states, businesses, and other stakeholders about how to respond. And of course, we hope that these types of discussions would have an impact and serve as a light of hope in a very dark social and economic time. And I think adhering to human rights and using human rights as a campus, as that threat that binds us all, um, will lead better results as opposed to just using responses that only are taking care of one's country or one particular region of the world. And it's our call that states should comply with international obligations of ensuring access to medicines, including the COVID-19 vaccines. Also to ensure that important technologies, intellectual property data um, around the vaccine 19 are wildly shared and that developing countries are supported in scaling up development, manufacturing and distribution capacities to ensure equality and equity in the access. And of course, to pay particular attention to objectives in Article 7 and the principles in Article 8 of the TRIPS Agreement. Um, and that in particular states should refrain from the use of national security or any other argument to allow trade secrets related to the vaccine treatment, testing and other information that are needed to combat the disease. This is not a time for profit making. This is a time to save the human race and humanity. And of course, when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, um, they should discharge their responsibilities, including exercising human rights due diligence to identify and address adverse impacts on the right to life and health as set out in the guiding principles on business and human rights. And in particular, they should refrain from causing or contributing to adverse impacts on the right to health by invoking intellectual property rights and prioritizing economic gains. And that finally, we stand by and support, of course, at the 31st special session at the General Assembly in response to the pandemic. Of course, we support um, that call and that statement and those guiding elements to ensure universal access to COVID-19 vaccine for all countries through international cooperation and assistance. And of course, before we can save the economy, before we can save industry, we have to save the humans first. And that should be our ultimate goal. Thank you so much. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. T. You ended on a very good note because the next uh, speaker, Mr. Zain Dango, also deals with some of the issues you've raised around trips and uh, also taking a human rights approach to how we deal with issues of the vaccines. In fact, uh, he has written an article about it where he was opining that the global South will not have sufficient access to vaccines unless there's a disruption in the global uh, you know, patent and trade uh, system that marginalizes countries of the global south. Mr. Dango, over to you. Uh, thank you, colleagues, and thank you for inviting me to this seminar. Uh, yes, Busani, I will follow on closely from many of the issues that Dr. T has spoken about. In fact, I'll zero in on vaccine nationalism and how it relates to issues of supply. But a webinar was hosted by the His Royal Highness, the Prince El San bin Talal of Jordan. And the subject of that webinar was really the subject of ensuring that refugees and displaced persons and people living under occupation in that region of the world were not left out of the queue for vaccines, never mind being put at the back of the queue. This resonates with what Chaleng has just spoken about that there are prevailing ideologies of superiority in, in the globe and within countries 
where women, black people, the poor are generally sometimes not just put at the back of the queue, but are left out of the queue. Um, so what yesterday's panel and others over the last few months have remarked upon was the speed with which the current batch of vaccines were developed and brought to market. At the same time, we're also hearing comments to the effect that this particular pandemic affected all people in all parts of the world. And I'll come back to that because this last point is quite significant. I don't think we should be blind to the likelihood that the very reason that such efficiency in developing these vaccines was because people in rich Western countries were badly affected by COVID-19. So this is not just a disease making people in Africa, Asia, or Latin America ill or killing them. The rich and powerful were equally affected and therefore, therefore there was this urgency and initial global solidarity around flattening the curve. However, as soon as scientists started working on the vaccines, we saw this solidarity waning as the vaccine candidates were being discussed, the richer countries, or we want to call them developed countries or countries in the north, bought up vast quantities of candidate vaccines. At that time, they were hedging the bets as there was not yet enough evidence as to which of the vaccines would be effective. So they pre-ordered most of the stocks of all the leading candidate vaccines. So in January 2020, we had a case where 14% of the world's population had bought out about 53% of the available vaccines outside of those that were being produced by Russia and China. But as we can see, vaccine nationalism had raised its ugly head. And again, it's not the first time that vaccine nationalism has emerged in other pandemics, including with SARS, we saw elements of vaccine nationalism, which prompted in many ways why South Africa and India uh, proposed the waiver. And, and I'll come back to that now. Incidentally, the, the European Union is now also being accused of naivety. South Africa was accused of naivety in not pre-purchasing vaccines. The EU, like South Africa, is being accused of naivety because we foregrounded solidarity as opposed to us first approaches. The EU, uh, incidentally, though, did make, is involved in vaccine nationalism, but did not put EU first clauses in their agreements with the manufacturers as the UK and the US have done. And the reaction to that is now to, to attempt to prevent the exports of vaccines manufactured on EU territory to other countries. And I'll come back to that a bit again. So technically, if you want to take a technical definition of vaccine nationalism, it describes a situation where governments sign agreements with pharmaceutical companies to supply their own populations, aid of vaccines becoming available for others. But I think as this pandemic has unfolded, a more accurate explanation of vaccine nationalism now is that while the pandemic correctly has been described as having affected all people all over the world, what we're finding is that to many, particularly in the richer countries, the developed countries, the North, not all people matter. So we can say that vaccine nationalism 
is a variant, uh, to use a bad word, of racism and other ideologies of superiority that has shaped North-South relationships for decades and centuries. So what we have it now is a situation where the richer countries have pre-purchased most of the available and yet to be made available vaccines. In some cases, they've pre-purchased enough to vaccinate their own population multiple times. As they commence the vaccine rollouts in their country, and with mounting global criticism, um, we find that the global South is being promised. You will get some vaccines that we do not use. Now, this leaves me with the imagery of people who have dished too much food on their plates at dinner time, and after being satiated, scrape the rest into a bowl for others who are less fortunate. The vaccines were produced with public funds. So the investments in R&D in the companies in Europe and America came from public funds in the main. But despite this, the instinctive us-first approach, the very countries are finding that corporate power can hit them too. So despite pre-purchasing vaccines, there is not enough companies manufacturing vaccines, even in the North, to meet their demands. This has led the EU, US, and the UK accusing each other, ironically, of vaccine nationalism. Some in these countries now, having previously actively undermined collective and globally coordinated processes to fight the pandemic, are beginning to realize that multilateral approaches are the best methods to slow down and stop the chain of transmission. But we must be careful of the approach that this kind of multilateralism is taking. We should be aware of a multilateralism that is centered on philanthropy and not on systemic measures. Now, the philanthropy is, is we've used some of this. We've got too much. We'll give you some. We'll donate to COVAX. And you can either, if you're LDIC, you'll get it free through COVAX, but only when dosages become available. And for countries like South Africa, or self-pay members of COVAX, you've got to buy through COVAX, buy through bilateral means, and thankfully all through the major setup by South Africa through the AU. But the issues that I want to talk about now is we cannot see the multilateral system reaction that is being increasingly being centered on, we will donate, we will give money, as opposed to changing the systemic issues. Now, I'll talk about that in the context of the waiver. So I think science suggests that vaccinating all people in some countries and depriving the majority of the world's population from access to the vaccines will not effectively break the virus transmission chain. So this means that the health, social, and economic challenges of the pandemic will continue unabated. So as vaccine inequality continues, the virus will continue. Also, the differential pace at which the vaccines are rolled out because of vaccine nationalism may create conditions for increased political turmoil between regions and has the potential to inflow, inflame global tensions and instabilities, not just in South Africa, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also in Europe. We're now seeing spats between the EU and the UK about who gets to get vaccines manufactured on EU soil. And we've also seen the EU, one EU country 
based on a, a measure implemented by the EU, block the export of vaccines to Australia. So a vaccine strategy that is truly global in nature and monitored through member states is what is required. This is because this pandemic is existential in nature for people and economies and cannot be left primarily to the private sector. What is needed? We need to wrestle control over vaccines from the private sector and in particular from the intellectual property rights regimes associated with the pharma companies. That is critical to meeting global vaccination targets. So this is where the waiver comes in. A waiver of IP related to medicine and commodities is required to end the pandemic. This waiver will facilitate the transfer of technology that Flaleng spoke about and know-how necessary for scaling up manufacturing of medical products and equipment. So it's not just vaccines, it's also other medical products and equipment. So the waiver that South Africa and India initially supported proposed is now supported by over 120 countries with an AU resolution as well, supporting it, and 58 co-sponsors. I won't go into the details of it, but just suffice to say that the key objective of the waiver is to ensure timely, affordable, and equitable access to vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics, to facilitate the ramping up of production in as many countries as possible to ensure an effective response to COVID-19. So it's not about manufacturing in South Africa only. It's about manufacturing capacity across the globe. Okay, so I'll talk about the opposition, but there are many often false reasons preferred by the opponents of the waiver. Um, Jens is the Medicine Sans Frontier has as a document talking about the myths. So one of these myths is that the waiver will not make a difference to upscaling manufacturing. However, MSF, other experts such as Cheng and Hinant have, have actually indicated there are multiple firms in different continents who have offered to make hundreds of millions of doses but cannot do so without protected blueprints and know-how and without the threat of countermeasures. Additionally, the UNICEF COVID vaccine market dashboard also reveals that there is unused manufacturing capacity across the globe. This includes three companies, possibly four in South Africa. Dr. Johnny just pointed out a map that shows us there's about 10 countries in all of Africa that with the necessary investments could move beyond packing and filling of vaccines to actual vaccine production for COVID-19. What's stopping them? is the fact that they are prohibited by prevailing patent rights and, and patent rules. So the, the key opponents of the waiver, including the EU, the US, Canada, Japan, Switzerland, Canada and Norway, and Brazil, often offer these myths, as MSF describes it, to counter um, the waiver. Yet, evidence is pointing to the fact that if you take out or remove the impediments that the patents impose on companies, they will repurpose to meet the global demand. I want to just sort of conclude more or less on what, what, what Leleng was talking about, that 
while the waiver is dealt with at the WTO, it does deal with issues of human rights. And I think she mentioned Article 7 and 8, and also there's Article 13 that talks about um, use you know, and waivers for public health reasons or emergency reasons. But also, you know, the pandemic is existentialist in nature, as Dr. John has pointed out. This means that these countries opposing the waiver are in fact breaching the right to life and the right to health, um, as Dr. Tlaleng has pointed out, which are found in many international law instruments and treaties, including binding measures in the international government on economic, social, and cultural right. Most, not all of these countries opposing it, have ratified this instrument. The recent commentary, I think Dr. Tlaleng has just quoted it, by the committee at the Human Rights Council on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, has stated that member states should support the waiver at the WTO. And this underscores the fact that this is a fundamental human rights issue and not just a technical trade-related issue. The right to life and the right to health should and does trump the right to private property. Incidentally, this comes back to the architecture of human rights globally. The right to private property was the first human right agreed to in the multilateral system, which shows you the power of private property rights within the human rights architecture. And why it's so difficult for us to challenge us. But in this case, as we've always argued, it should be including during the HIV and AIDS pandemic, is that the right to life and the right to health does trump the right to intellectual property rights. The world should not and cannot be held hostage by the claims for patents, for profits by pharmaceutical companies that cannot be dispensed with in a scenario where there's a global emergency. I think the map that Dr. John showed us shows us the gaps between access to life-saving medication between the North and the South, and particularly in Africa. We are seeing some supplies going to Asia at the rate that is slightly higher than we have coming to Africa. And this is why we argue that the waiver at this stage is an important measure that should be supported by most countries in the world. The preferred means of making decisions at the WTO is through consensus. We should push for consensus, but at this stage, I think we should consider doing what many WTO members think as the unthinkable, and that's going for a vote if necessary. You know, the Article 9 of the WTO does make provisions for a vote. And I think as South Africa, we will push as hard as possible for consensus. But if we need to, we will also put the issue of a vote squarely on the agenda. Because this is actually about saving millions of lives and will prepare us for the next pandemic. Because if successful, what this does, it changes this, this asymmetrical manner in which medicines are produced in the north and primarily consumed in the south at a huge cost to countries and peoples in the south and huge profits for companies and countries in the north. I will leave it there, Chair, and take questions and answers. Thank you for that, Chair, Mr. Dango. 
I think that's quite a, a mouthful. Dr. T is going to leave. She's got some pleasures of time. She's read some of the questions. Let me give her an opportunity to read, respond to some of the questions that are on the platform before we can give other colleagues an opportunity to do so. Dr. T, you've seen the questions on the platform? Hi, Musani. Look, I'm not sure what to really answer because I think a lot of them are comments. I mean, people just sharing their ideas going forward. But I think for me, you know, and I agree with Zane, you know, that we shouldn't lose sight of why we are still fighting for equity and equality in global health. And I think the global health architecture is unfortunately still dealing with the historical impact and present expressions of colonialism and racism. And that the only way forward that I see is being intersectional in our approach. Because all the systems that we are trying to dismantle and to get over may seem far removed, but they are all reinforced by the same systems of oppression, whether it's racism, sexism, Afrophobia. And we have to realize that, you know, this big thing about, oh, let's stop working in silos. We don't actually have a choice anymore. We don't have a choice but to actually refuse the way that the agenda for public health system has been set by global health funders, by philanthropists, and actually get back to a place where the healthcare providers themselves, the scientists themselves, the experts themselves, who are in charge of translating and operationalizing the right to health on the ground at national level, at district level, at local level, actually have a say and a seat from program design to thought process, to implementation, to budgeting and resourcing. And I think, again, another reason why many health systems were caught off guard and ill-prepared is another big elephant in the room that talks about the maladministration, the corruption, and the misuse of funds in the public health sector. And how, despite even South Africa, if you look comparatively with other countries, and I'm going to South Africa because I live here, although on this panel, you know, I'm wearing my hat of special reputation on the right to health at the UN. The truth is, if you look at the GDP and how much of that we put into our healthcare system, we should be getting better outcomes. And the reason is why are we not getting these better outcomes? And so we need to be honest about the need for transparency. And that's what social civil society organizations have been fighting for in the last few months, is that where there's no transparency, it's very hard to hold governments and leadership accountable. And that further sows a seed of distrust. And it already exists, right? And so the only way for leadership and governments around the world, even in our own region, to actually gain trust of the populations and the citizens, and you can see about public health messaging, they don't even trust those basic evidence-based research because there's already an existing distrust, right? So the only way to gain that back is by being transparent in order to facilitate accountability. And I think for me, that's the main thing. And COVID-19, as an opportunity as it is, we mustn't forget that it has caused tremendous loss and grief for many people around the world. And we have to pay attention to the mental and health and wellness of populations in a way we've never done before. And so in totality, I think we have to really go back to the basic principles of public health. It's not just about access to facilities. It's about acceptable treatment options. It's about having quality care. And you can't have quality care if you are not 
keeping the health force themselves well and healthy and able to actually, you know, deliver the care that's required. So, yeah, I think there is something to be said about the healthcare funding and financing and the lack of, of our abilities to actually meet the requirements and have the necessary positive health outcomes that we are currently failing to do. And COVID is really just exposing the deeper, the deeper issues that have already been existing. And how we move forward from this has to be on an anti-colonial, anti-racist, but being deliberate and intentional about using intersectional frameworks going forward. Thank you, Gusani. And thank you, everybody. I will be getting off the call. It was a pleasure to see you all today. Thank you, Dr. T, for making time here. There is a few colleagues who are engaging there in the Q&A platform. I've written in the chat. We'll give them an opportunity to make inputs. Uh, Dr. Moloko, Dr. Moko, and Kate Stegman. Braconfi, are you here? You want to share your perspective as you were engaging in the chat platform? No, thank you very much. Uh, I don't mind engaging, though I did not expect to except in the chat. The two small things that I just wanted to hear the panelists on is first, the fact that the public discourse that is predominant at this point presents vaccination as the silver bullet against the epidemic. And it does not emphasize the need to master basics of control of communicable diseases. My understanding is that on that one, the approach to communicable diseases, especially deadly ones like COVID-19, would have been a call for all the people who are at war against this epidemic to master the basics of public health and thereafter add all infection control measures plus vaccination. Now, the second point that worries me is that my observation, which might be wrong, is that it looks like the global pharmaceutical industry is quite irritated by the low price of the AstraZeneca vaccine and its accessibility, especially its ease of transportation and storage. And it also ignores other vaccines that are available elsewhere. For example, the vaccines that are available from China, Sinopharm, and from Cuba, be sovereign. Thank you. Okay. That's a big uh, statement which could be possible, I suspect. As part of the series of these conversations, we will also be inviting Big Pharma and we will put this question through to them. After all, this is a conversation about the political economy of vaccines and the statement you are making speaks exactly to that. Dr. Moko? Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. Very good afternoon to all the colleagues. I must appreciate the input from the, Mr. Dangwa and Dr. T. My comment is based on the question I've raised that it's my observation that the vaccination program is moving at a snail's pace. And then the question is, if we struggle with the first phase of health professionals, to what extent when we go to second phase and the third phase where the masses of our people they have to be vaccinated and also we get the 60% population immunity level. So that's one of the issues from personal perspective with the implementation of the vaccine. The second part is that it seems we didn't learn anything 
from the initiation of the antiretroviral program in South Africa. When we started the antiretroviral program, we started the way we are starting the vaccination program, which was very slow, and many people were dying who needed those antiretroviral treatment. It seems we didn't learn anything from that leaf as we are implementing. We have forgotten those best practices within the antiretroviral space. So for me, and I think as the country, we need to learn from that leaf and move with the mass uh, vaccination. And then the last issue I want to raise is the question of how do we deal as the society between proper scientists and pseudo-science, and then who seem to occupy the social media space and create more confusion within the society, and how do we deal with those issues? And then the pseudo-scientists, they seem to have a mileage and a listenership. So how do we do to ensure that our society and public do not get confused and be mostly suspicious of dealing with the vaccinations. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Kate, are you there? After Kate, uh, because of the question that uh, Dr. Moko has asked them, there are a few colleagues who are journalists here. I saw Vugani there. Maybe we will bring Vugani immediately after Kate, because as a media practitioner, he might be able to share a perspective on how to deal with the pseudoscience that is peddled in uh, social media spaces. Kate? Hi, yes, I'm here. Um, I don't know why my video function isn't working. My question is to Dr. Kenga Song. Thank you very much for the updates on Avat and AMSP's important vaccine acquisition efforts. They're obviously an incredibly important pillar for us here in South Africa, but also on the rest of the continent. I was just wondering if you could let us know if any of the provisionally secured 270 million doses have actually been acquired and even administered. And if not, do you have any more information on the timeline of the rollout of those AU procured doses? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Vugan, are you here? Like Hi, Yes, Vugan, after you, it will be Martin Kingston so that he can give a perspective from a business as well so we understand whether organized business in South Africa is working and uh, helping uh, you know, the state and other social partners to mobilize vaccines. So after Vugani, it will be uh, Martin Kingston. Go ahead, Vugani. Hi, Bosani. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to contribute. I do need to state, though, that I'm not a media practitioner. I am only a former media practitioner. In fact, the capacity I am participating in here is as a representative of Telcom SOC which is where I work now in the Regulatory Affairs and Government Relations Division. And part of our concern, which explains mine and our presence here, we are in partnership and we have been for a while with the VET School of Governance, basically partnering with the school and uh, particularly Professor Amzugisi Kobo in order um, to provide provide the resources and the support to actually tease through precisely these kinds of discussions and issues that that we are having now. We've been producing a number of well-researched policy papers on issues such as uh, how to revive the economy, how to re-establish the manufacturing and industrial base of our economy, what to do about the digital opportunities opening up in our economy, and what are the best policy tools and policy areas in which to invest in order to be able to position ourselves for the opportunity of fourth industrial revolution and through that the school has also uh, developed this area of inquiry um, obviously also pushed by what we see happening with the um, 
with the pandemic through to explore this area of vaccine nationalism and the possibilities of vaccine manufacturing, indigenous vaccine manufacturing uh, for the African continent and how that uh, feeds into what we are doing elsewhere in the economy in order to revive our, our industrial and manufacturing base. So that is my interest in this. It's not necessarily in terms of journalism and communications. It's in the area of where we as a country need to invest in order to revive our capacity to become a self-sustaining but also very globally engaged industrial economy. Thank you, Busan. Thank you. Thanks for that. Martin, from the side of business, is there hope? There's always hope, Busani. So let me just comment on that briefly, if I may, and thank you for the invitation. My view, and I think it's business's view, is that the level of cooperation that we're now in government is unprecedented and absolutely essential if we're going to be able to roll out the vaccine as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. And I believe that it is acknowledged that although it's not a silver bullet, the largest single intervention that we can make as a country to address both health and economic consequences of the pandemic, regardless, in fact, of cost, I'm not saying cost isn't important, it's a secondary issue, is to roll out the vaccine as comprehensively and as aggressively as possible. And we're working hand in glove with government to do that. Not just in South Africa, we need to be very mindful of the fact that the variant that has already emerged in the context of the second wave is very pernicious and particularly problematic in South Africa rather than in the rest of the continent or those we've seen is spread into the rest of the continent. But there are concerns that the third wave, which many people anticipate could arrive as early as May and may indeed be um, catalyzed by um, gatherings. It's very clear now that there's a direct correlation between super spreader events and subsequent waves or peaks The third wave will be with us from May through June and July and obviously over the Easter. And our primary focus, not as business, but as a country, Bustani, is to ensure that we can vaccinate not just the healthcare workers. Uh, There's 1.25 million of them, although we think probably less than a million to be vaccinated. Those are they who are being vaccinated currently with the J&J phase 3B trial, but also the phase two, phase two contingent of people to be vaccinated, which is the elderly, those with comorbidities, those in congregant settings and essential services. Now that's between 16 and 18 million people, theoretically, and we're pressing very hard, not only to negotiate and finalize the contractual arrangements, but also to bring them into the country, because it's important uh, both for us and indeed for our neighbors. And in that context, that vaccine will be administered. We think we can ramp up as a country to 250,000 a day, we start phase two, of which approximately 60% would be administered by the private sector from small clinics and pharmacies and doctor's rooms and private hospitals through to, if you like, the extra large supersized facilities like convention centers or football stadiums, but hand in glove with the public sector. Now, all of that depends upon everybody operating in an absolutely synchronized manner and accessing the vaccines. And of course, that's the topic of your discussion and it's the highest problem that we face as a country, which is that there is huge constraints within the system on the part of the manufacturers. The manufacturers, as speakers have been able to talk, they're able to effectively call the shots, not only on price, but also on contractual terms and conditions. And therefore we need to understand that at this moment in time, uh, we have no choice but to accept what may be very unpalatable offers. Clearly, the pandemic is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Getting to herd immunity is going to take 
a very long time if it's ever theoretically achievable. And therefore, we both have to ensure that we can develop our own internal manufacturing capability. And Bussani, I would remind you and the listeners that that's exactly what happened with PPE. When the pandemic broke in March of last year, there was no PPE that was being locally manufactured. And again, as social partners, government, labor, business, and civil society worked together to ensure that we could start to not only non-medical, but even medical grade PPE could manufacture, which we're now doing at scale. I think that I should be reassuring your listeners that we have it within our capabilities to be able to roll out the vaccine on an aggressive and comprehensive basis. But as I said, only on the basis that we can land the vaccine in the country, that we access the manufacturers at the most senior level, that we're prepared to sometimes swallow our pride, at least in the immediate short term. And then we can, I think, over the medium term, start to look at how we can adjust our strategy, as I said, to localize the manufacturing and to focus particularly not only on South Africa, but as you say, on the balance of the continent. Thanks, Busani. No, thank you for that. And uh, also for agreeing that I could ambush you and get you to make an input here. Colleagues, let me just outline what is going to happen. This is a start of a series of conversations that we are facilitating as a um, Prof. Kobo indicated we have support from Telecom, APSA, and the Higher Health. So we'll be hosting a series of other sessions, including having some working papers that will be produced as part of this conversation. We take interest in this in the National School of Government because public servants are affected and affected by what's the matter of vaccines. In many instances, they are supposed to communicate what is going on in various areas where they are doing their work. And parts of them also are frontline officers, and therefore they are interested to understand what's going on. It's a very important education intervention in our view because it builds awareness and sharpens perspective. Before I request my colleague Jens uh, to do a summary, I'm going to go back to Zane and give Zane uh, two minutes to make an intervention. I'll go back to Mzu to also make an intervention, then we'll go to Jens to do a summary of the conversation today and what it means for the subsequent conversations we'll be having. So let me go to you, Zane, for two minutes, then we go to Mzu and we go to Jens. Thank you, Pusani. You know, I don't think I've got much to say, aside from re-emphasizing what Conti was saying, is that in many ways the vaccines is a major solution I'm not going to use not a silver bullet or a silver bullet, but it is a major solution, but it doesn't discount the other measures that we've been practicing thus far. And I think that message is important. The the second point that I'd like to make is that I'm glad that big organized business is here because one of the issues that we really need to deal with is the secrecy in the deals that are being made with pharmaceutical companies, not just here in South Africa, but globally, you know, so that the kind of provisions in the non-disclosure agreements that procurers, where particularly government procurers, have to comply with may, and I'm saying this with a big M, in the long term prohibit or, or inhibit the capabilities of manufacturing ourselves, even if we get the waiver, because they may just build in provisions that provides for clauses that makes it difficult for local manufacturing to take place. As a senior government official, I don't even have access to what these agreements are. And I don't want, you know, because I'm not in that space. 
But so these are major issues that need to be dealt with when our business engages with the pharmaceutical companies, because this does build distrust in the relationship between governments on one end, the public on the other hand, and the pharmaceutical industry on the other end. So the secrecy issue, the non-disclosure agreements must be dealt with so that people understand what agreements, what are the conditions, and what are the impacts of these conditions in the short and the long run. Thanks. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm reading in the chat, uh, there's uh, someone who's written Kingsley, an African proverb, which says, only a fool builds a shield in the middle of a war. I think that's quite mouthful because questions whether or not we're in the middle of the war and we're busy building a shield or we're actually uh, fighting back. Let me go to you, Jens, if you could summarize our conversation today. We will be sending the presentation to everybody who has logged on here today. We will also answer some of the questions that you have raised. So this is not the first nor the last. In the subsequent uh, conversations, we'll make sure that you get the responses and you will get the presentation as well. Jens, if you could summarize. Yes, thank you, Fusani. First of all, let me thank our distinguished panelists, John, Dr. T, and Stein Dango the very valuable contributions and then of course i want to thank all of our participants and contributors in the chat box and for joining in when being put on the spot by busani i think as a launch it has been a very good platform for what we wish to take forward in terms of these conversation and dialogues which is really to unpack the conversations and in particular on the issue of vaccine manufacturing as dr john said COVID is here to stay. We are looking at resurgence or so-called third wave, not just in South Africa, but in the continent. And as, as Dr. John also mentioned, the know-how exists to manufacture vaccines in Africa. The map so vividly demonstrated that we are not starting from scratch and, and we do have a lot to build on already. I think as Dr. T mentioned, and it's very crucial to to keep the linkage to a human rights perspective, because what we are learning, and Sane touched upon this as well, is that this global access model, which is essentially based on procurement with a preference for intellectual property rights above and beyond human rights, above and beyond the right to information and the right to healthcare, is archaic. And I think the best way to demonstrate that, as Dr. T did, was to highlight that the ones that remain marginalized in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic are the same, whether it's our poor communities, it's the global south, it's black and it's disempowered communities. And, and those are our communities which have remained marginalized and remain to do so in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, essentially because the preference for an archaic sequencing of rights, which needs to be challenged. And the same, thank you for highlighting that, that that is the foundation or parts of them for the waiver submitted by South Africa and India, which has now been endorsed by the entire African continent via the African Union, to challenge exactly that, because what we see and what we hear are two very, very different things. And Sane made a good point when he alluded to what I would call the figment of multilateralism, which is essentially that interest of the manufacturers of global 
north or west, whichever we want to call it, the ones that are sitting on the rights to manufacture at the moment, they use the figment of multilateralism to maintain a global access model on procurement via COVAX, as an example, as opposed to building a much more sustainable, not just from a human rights, but from a pandemic perspective, as well from a development perspective, a global model based on expanding manufacturing. Lastly, because it's a very important point, is that as Singh said, this is not just related to COVID. We've seen it many times before. The fact that the world, and I agree with saying that the fact that COVID-19 occurred first in some of the wealthier nations is probably an advantage for Africa because it has accelerated the development. We saw the inverse when it came to Ebola in West Africa, where it took more than a year for the international so-called community to respond. And really one of the main challenges is that we need to revert to access model that expands manufacturing, the capacity is here, and the systems that are in place, so-called multilateralism at the moment, does not really allow for that expansion. The conversations at WTO continue, the conversations at African Union level continue, and we will, of course, uh, continue the same conversations here, and we'll invite all of you to continue to join us as we take this forward and soon more invitations for a similar dialogue will be shared. Thank you very much all for attending and thank you chair for allowing me to to summarize back to you. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, summary dance. Thank you to the colleagues who've sponsored this as they've been listed earlier there's a few working papers that are going to be produced to inform the science of the conversation that is taking place over the next couple of weeks. Thank you to the panelists for allowing, making time to come here and engage with us. This was on record, so it will be shared. The presentation will be sent to those who were here and others who were interested. Otherwise, you can go to Facebook and you'll find the link because it will remain permanent there. We've taken note of all the questions. We will endeavor to give responses to those questions by way of email. At least we now have your email. It's a very important arrangement. This one in a partnership between the Novet School of Governance and the National School of Government. And obviously, there will be more partners who will be joining us going forward. Thank you for indulging us and may you have a good afternoon further. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the VIS School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg.